Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about how we talk to people who are different from ourselves. In this episode, you're going to hear a conversation with David Goodhart. David is a journalist, commentator and author. He's a former correspondent for the Financial Times. He founded Prospect magazine and edited it and he still writes frequently for the broadsheets. He's also a former director of centre-left think tank Demos and is now head of demography, immigration and integration at centre-right think tank Policy Exchange. He's become known in recent years for his thinking on immigration, his book The British Dream and more recently The Road to Somewhere. Both wrestle with questions of nationhood, identity and how we manage the movement of people. We spoke about the deep value difference between those who feel rooted to place and those who don't. His own transition between political tribes and whether the gap left by religion's retreat can or should be filled. David, thank you so much for being willing to speak to me today. I'd love to hear your answer to the question that I'm asking everyone. What are your sacred values? What do you hold sacred? Right. That is a very big and difficult question, particularly in a, at a time when we don't, we're not really used to talking about the sacred. Uh, it's not a word I ever really use. I'm not a very religious person, and it's a word that we've come to associate very much with religion. There are obviously sort of things in my life that are sacred to me, my my home, my children. Um, they're, they're now grown up, actually, and I'm also divorced, so home and children are not actually any longer the same things, but obviously they, they overlap um, in meaning. I'm, I would say, moderately nationalistic. I'm a big sports fan, so I care a lot about um, when England are being badly beaten by Australia in the cricket. Is there a defining value or a principle that you feel has shaped your life or you've tried to let your life be shaped by, even if you haven't always lived up to it? I'm not sure there really is, to be honest. Um, I mean, you know, we all want to be good, um, but that doesn't really take us very far because we then have to define what we mean by it. We want to, um, yeah, we want to have a reputation for being good and moral and um, decent and upstanding. Um, and yes, and I think um, we want our future self to be an improvement on our past self. I think I, I, think I do have that sense um, of wanting to try to learn by mistakes and be a be a better person. I'm not sure I am necessarily to, be, to become a more um, aware person, both self-aware and also, particularly in my line of business, which is which is kind of analysing and writing about current society, to to be a, a better and and truer analyst of our situation. So intellectual honesty, maybe. Yes, um, yes, exactly. You know, admitting one's mistakes, being open to making mistakes both personal and intellectual and and learning from them and revising one's outlook as a result i'm sure we'll come back to that but i want to let our listeners hear a little bit more about you understand you a bit better so perhaps you could tell me a bit about what were the spiritual or perhaps philosophical background to your childhood were there any values that were really formative in your childhood uh again nothing particularly stands out i have to admit i was brought up uh in an anglican household my 
my father well my parents were 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 affluent upper middle class my father um both my parents were half american so i there, there was a kind of american influence in the background you know we we had peanut butter before it was common in this country did that make you very cool at school <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and my father's father was Jewish, um, but I wasn't particularly aware of that when I, when I was young. Uh, it was not something that my, um, my father particularly talked about. He was himself a politician. Um, soon after I was born, he became a Conservative MP in 1957 um, and was a very absent father. I had a, I had a kind of old-fashioned traditional upper-class upbringing in that I went away to boarding school when I was young, when I was not quite eight years old. Um, so didn't have a very close relationship with either of my parents. Um, uh, I was also unusually one of a very large family. I have six siblings. I'm one of seven. Um, and that, that probably had the greatest that was probably the greatest single influence on me i think i think there's a lot to be said for large families uh, i have four children of my own which um never seemed particularly many to me coming from one of seven but most other people say wow four yeah. um i just had my second so four sounds heroic to me right <laughs> so there was always a a um I think a sort of a comfortable sense of having lots of people around, not really being allowed to be too much of a, a loner. Uh, although then being sort of removed from that and going off to a boarding school, you know, when you're not when you're still a very young person, um, obviously leaves its mark. Um, I, I, you know, I I went to um, in terms of the religion, I, I did go to church as a small child. Um, Neither of my parents were particularly religious. Uh, it was very much sort of going through the motions. Uh, there was obviously a, an Anglican background, both at my um, prep school and then public school. Uh, and I think, you know, you, you unconsciously imbibe some of the imagery and, of course, the language. And you, you know, I mean, I just the other day, I mean, having not really been to church for apart from Christmas Day occasionally, um, I... I'm not quite sure what the occasion was, but I, I suddenly realised I knew all the words of the Lord's Prayer. Still, I mean, not terribly impressive, but um, that you know, some that had gone into my deep memory uh, a long time ago, and rather wonderful words they are too. Um, but um, I never, I never felt a, a, any great spirituality or any great commitment to. I was confirmed. I think. By the time I was confirmed into the church, I'd already lost any faith I had. I was doing it simply to please my parents and, and indeed godparents, but um, it didn't really mean anything to me. And I, you know, this was in the kind of, when are we, sort of early 1970s, and I was, you know, as typical sort of rather kind of hippie-ish um, young man who didn't believe in any of that old stuff hmm. any longer. What would you call yourself now? Culturally Christian, agnostic, atheist? Um, I've certainly, you know, I mean, having been, you know, quite a long way out on the liberal spectrum, I'm certainly much more small C conservative about things. So I'm much more appreciative of the value of religion, even if I'm not particularly, you know, I haven't reconnected with it um, in my own life. Um, I, I, I think I'd probably still call myself a, a, an agnostic, but. Um, but much more interested in 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 religion and indeed what the meaning of losing our religion as a society um, has for us and um, whether um, whether it does indeed lie behind many of our social problems and 
And if so, how can we either revive it or produce something that plays the same function as, as religion in our lives? I mean, I, th I think there is a sort of religion-shaped hole in, in Western liberal societies, or particularly European ones. It's not quite so true in the United States. Um, and I think it is... It's it's something that I think we people will talk about more. I mean, it's possible, perhaps partly in response to the kind of re-religionising of our society through immigration. Uh, I mean, we are, uh, are actually becoming more religious society, just not amongst the ethnic majority. The ethnic majority continues to lose its religion while the growing um, uh, minorities, African, South Asian... Uh, are overwhelmingly religious, um, often, you know, uh, and it's often a very, very central aspect of their lives. And there hasn't been, I, I'm not sure whether there has been perhaps a little bit in America, but there hasn't been a sort of competitive re-religionising of the ethnic majority, which you might have expected, um, or not yet anyway. There is a movement known as Reverse Missionaries, which gets covered occasionally in the Christian press, where um, particularly British Commonwealth countries um, feel an obligation to send missionaries back to the mother country in order to bring the gospel that they themselves received. I'm not sure how successful they're being, um, but it is something that uh, is, is present. Obviously, one of the the things we think about at Theos is this idea that we believe uh, religion in general, Christianity in particular, has a huge amount to offer to wider society, has some wisdom, some thinking and some, uh, you know, people power, social capital, commitment, motivation for the common good that it does significantly more harm and um, significantly more good than it does harm um, in contrast to kind of the public narrative of it. But obviously there's some ways in which um, certainly within our public language, uh, religious people haven't always been as helpful as they might have been. Um, so as someone who is not one of religion's cultured despisers, but wouldn't call yourself religious, what would be some advice you might give for people of faith, um, whether, how they can better serve their communities and perhaps uh, stop, stop shutting down their own space by um, perhaps being a bit tin-eared to a wider culture? I, I think the church has probably kind of allowed itself we were, we were just talking earlier about how uh, of the whatever it is 120 anglican bishops only one voted for brexit um and i think the this sort of switch that has happened within the anglican church certainly between being the conservative party at prayer to now being the kind of ultra liberal party at, at prayer um has not been to the church's long-term benefit, I don't think. I mean, I, I'm not saying it should go back to what it was, but I think uh, the church ought to be in a stronger position than it is today, you know, given these these value divides that I've written about in my book and um, that were manifested by the Brexit vote. We saw it in the Trump vote in America and so on, these these gulfs between the, the religious, sorry, the, the kind of highly educated mobile um, people, usually graduates, you know, with the general with a kind of um, agnostic uh, worldview in favour of openness and autonomy and self-realisation and all of that, and still the more um, small C conservative, settled um, uh, worldview, place more st stress on security and familiarity, tends to have to, tends to draw value from group attachments and tends to be more patriotic and so on than the than the more 
educated mobile groups. I mean, the, the, these new divisions that have emerged um, ought in a way to... I mean, you know, the, the, the church ought to be in, in, in the right position to sort of act as, the, as a bridge because it is the task of politics, I think, or, and, and anyone who's involved in, in society um, to think of ways of how one um, um, overcomes these divisions. And you know, it, it is the task of politics to, um, to, to, to bring together conflicting interests or find common ground between conflicting interest groups. Um, I don't, and I think the church, by becoming so associated with or, uh, or many of the most uh, liberal currents in our society, very much associated with the, the kind of mobile uh, educated groups, um, that the church has not been there, really. And, and uh, th- this is a moment where, uh, I mean, I'm not quite sure what sort of decisions it should have taken 10, 15, 20 years ago to be there. Um, but whenever I do hear a bishop or even an archbishop speaking, I think they are speaking to such a narrow group of people. I don't, I don't even mean believers. I think just in their worldview, they are um, such a long way from you know the, the dwindling remnants of 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 their own believing group too um um i i mean i i don't know enough about it to have any coherent advice but uh, you know the, the the church could and perhaps could could yet still play a role as a, as a kind of a sort of national therapist almost um um that that i don't really see it playing today I and mean, although you know it uses that rhetoric often and there's a sort of um and obviously the church is always almost too excessively talking about um bringing groups together and that just sounds pious i mean uh, you've got to acknowledge differences and conflicts of genuine conflicts yeah. um and you've got to be ready to speak up for your own side. I mean, there is a lot of there is a lot that's really rather good in the Christian faith. Um, dare one say it, possibly even better than some other faiths. But would you ever hear a um, a man or woman of the cloth saying that? No, of course you wouldn't. But you know, um, you know, is it Leviticus, the Golden Rule? I mean, you know, this is the kind of foundation of modern liberalism in some ways, isn't it? We're going to take a short break now to catch up with what is going on with the Theos team. I am here in the Theos office with my colleague Nathan Mladen. Nathan is a researcher and head of relationships here and working on various projects, including one about debt. But today I wanted to hear a bit about his PhD. Nathan has submitted it recently as amounts to his viva and should, as I'm sure he will, he pass, he will quickly become one of the most qualified members of the team. Nathan, I'd love to hear what you've been pouring your heart and soul in into for the last five years before you joined us. Well, I never get tired of saying that it's been a long journey. A long, long journey, uh, but, you know, it's coming to an end now, uh, and I'm really looking forward to uh, next week, although I'm obviously quite terrified. Nathan, what's the title of your PhD? Theatre in Providence, uh, the strengths and limitations of a theatrical model for theology. So you're a theatre geek, you love going to see plays? Uh, I do, although I haven't really been to the theatre very much uh, in the last few months because I've been writing this piece of work called a PhD thesis. Uh, But yes, I do like theatre. And one of my previous guests on the podcast, Pippa Evans, calls herself an improviser. What she does is showstoppers and various other things. You know, improvisation is her religion. I gather you've been thinking a bit about improvisation as well. Uh, Yes, actually, yes. Improvisation is a pretty big uh, deal in in the thesis because what the thesis really tries to do is kind of um, 
show theater as a particularly useful model for thinking about a very uh, simple but actually a pretty complicated question about how God relates and interacts with the world. So it's kind of sitting in this now growing stream of work at the intersection between theology and the arts and theology and theater more specifically and tries to say, what's God got to do with it? And what does theater have to do with this question? So what the images that it's bringing up for me is that, well, originally God is a kind of jazz improviser with a blackberry and a smoky bar, but I, I'm assuming that's just me. Uh, like that. is, it, uh, is it about God's how much is predetermined that actually there's not a plan that he's just crunching through, but he is improvising in relationship with us? Yes. In fact, I do come out saying that I think it's helpful, obviously with qualifications, to think of God as an improviser. Uh, and I think, you know, the the takeaway point from that uh, is that whatever the world throws at him, Whatever we throw at him, whatever um, things we say and do that really kind of mess things up, God is always the infinitely excellent improviser who will always say yes and to the world and to our screw-ups. So this is the second time yes and has been uh, mentioned on this podcast. It's something I've been learning from Pippa that actually when good improvisation is about uh, not blocking but letting things flow through you by saying yes Anne, and building on things and I'm hoping that Pippa's going to finish her book soon about improv your life because it feels like a pretty good philosophy. That sounds excellent yes absolutely yes and is at the core of uh, improvisation uh, so you know my, my thesis basically says how far will the theatrical model which is all you know all, all of these images and all these pictures hanging together somehow how far can they take us in thinking about this thorny question of how God uh, relates to the world. What's what's God got to do with my waking up this morning? What's God got to do with Trump and Brexit, to use these overused uh, words for yeah, 2017? Yeah. Well, uh, we hope to create some space for Nathan to do some more work on theology and the arts. He's not the only one in the team with an interest in this. I did a master's in Christianity and the arts many moons ago, and our colleague Anna Wheeler, who I'm sure we'll speak to on our future podcast, also has an interest. So keep your is tuned for it and if it's something that you're interested in please do uh, get in touch with nathan via our website to come on to uh, one of the themes in your most recent book the road to somewhere about and you've alluded really to these two groups which you really helpfully call the somewheres people f who feel rooted to place essentially and the anywheres who think of themselves as more mobile global citizens and they map quite helpfully well quite roughly but helpfully onto the the way people voted around Brexit. This podcast is particularly interested in how we talk to people who disagree with us, people who have different values from us, see the world differently. How do you think the somewheres and the anywheres are doing at talking to each other? Um, well, obviously not at all well. I mean, just one sort of minor um, caveat to what you said. I mean, I, I 
the, 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 this Anywhere group that I described, I mentioned earlier, I mean, the, the mobile and the educated essentially are a very large group. It isn't just the metropolitan, liberal metropolitan elites or, or the, you know, the kind of global villages. They are a subset of Anywheres. I mean, Anywheres are 20, 25% of the population um, and growing quite fast. So, you know, a, a very large proportion of the people that you will see, you know, on the streets of London will be Anywheres. I mean, we're, we're, not, we're not talking about a small group, but the... Um, uh, the, this gulf is particularly acute, I think, in this country, partly because, well, for, for various reasons, I mean, even compared to, say, the United States or continental Europe, uh, I think we um, very, it was very clear after the Brexit referendum that huge swathes of the country that had voted Remain knew nobody in their friendship circle or family who'd voted Brexit and vice versa. Um, and and I think that's partly because of our tradition. It's actually not a very long tradition. Uh, it's really since the Robbins report of overwhelmingly residential universities that we have developed a system of mass higher education which mimics the forms of old elite Oxford and Cambridge higher education Um and I think that has had some rather damaging consequences in a way that so many of the people, you know, the, the affluent, the managerial classes, the people in positions of, of authority in Britain, whatever social class background they come from, uh, overwhelmingly are people that have left home at 18 to go to a residential university. Uh, they've probably then... If they're ambitious and they're pursuing professional careers, they will they will have gone off to to live in a in a metropolitan centre in London, quite possibly. May have gone abroad to work for a year or two. Something in education is deliberately derooting people. Well, um, exactly. I mean, very deliberately, and um, they uh, will have networks, friendship networks that are completely different to the ones they had when they were at school. I mean, even in America, that's not true. I mean, half of American students live at home. So you you have a more kind of evolutionary process. So your, your high school friends and your college friends will often sort of be in the same networks. Um, so even if you're quite a successful person in America, and I think in perhaps in Germany too, you will still have contact with the, you know, ordinary people, to use the ugly phrase. And I think that's much been much less the case here. I mean, when I go around talking about my book, I often say to people, you know, if they've put up your hands, if you if you if you're a graduate, if you went to university, particularly if you went to a you know into a good Russell Group University, and keep your hand up if you have any close friends who are non graduates, and those people put their hands down, um, and um, uh, and I think that has helped to make these distinctions sharper here having said that i mean i do think um although my book is partly about these value gulfs and divisions i think we we there is a danger of exaggerating it and um i think it is worth pointing out that there is actually a very high level of consensus about some pretty fundamental things in british society pretty well everybody in britain sort of signs up to the idea of a highly regulated market economy uh, attached to or alongside what is by historical standards a very big state. Um, there's some political difference between left and right on the size of the state, but actually not a huge amount. It's kind of 38 versus 42%, possibly slightly more with a Corbyn Labour government, but not a huge amount more. And we have a public uh, space that is pretty 
permissive, pretty egalitarian, pretty liberal. Um, and again, most people sign up to that. Most people sign up to this combination of what, you know, it's sort of crude sort of, uh, and, and somewhat economistic description of British society. But, um, you know, it, it, and it's worth remembering that when we talk about the value divisions and, they're all, and these value divisions are, I think, much more socio-cultural than they are socio-economic. So where are the flashpoints, do you think? Where are the real, where, where are the real value gaps? That are, you know, I might call them sacred values, but the, for you, value gaps that are causing people to feel like the other is more of a stranger than perhaps they necessarily are. Well, I, I mean, I think it is, it, it is encapsulated by this anywhere, somewhere distinction and the, particularly the, the, the feeling that somewheres have that they, it's like, like the sort of centrifugal versus centripetal, isn't it? I, I, I mean, uh, that, that somewheres feel that they are the sort of, they are the, the centripetal force in society and the levers, the, the people that, um, that not only leave, but also... Not leave as in Brexit, but leave the place of origin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> leave, yeah, yeah, exactly. The leavers tended to be Remainers and Remainers yeah. leavers, as it were. <laughs> but that they, are, they've moved into a, a, a much more individualistic sphere. They don't hold any of the things that somewheres hold sacred, to use the term we talked about at the start, um, and indeed, they uh, they often have contempt for the um, the the group attachments, the attachments to tradition, um, the the, um, the you know the 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 belief in in um, you know, in security, in familiarity. The importance of familiarity to to most people is seen. By not all, but but I think by some, anyway, is something rather juvenile, um, possibly even contemptible. Um, and this uh, Roger Scruton has this Greek concept for it. Uh, I don't know if you've read his uh, work on this. He calls it oikophobia, meaning the kind of phobia of place. Uh, or the, the rooted, uh, and it is. I think it is a sort of factor. It's something in. Um, I don't know if it's just modern Western culture or whether it's um, becoming better educated anywhere in, in the world in any culture that there's somehow what goes along with that often is a sort of repudiation of roots and place and and a feeling that that rootlessness and transcendence and um and you know internationalism cosmopolitanism is not only something that's sort of interesting and good but is better than rootedness i mean i think this is um i think this is one of the problems is the i don't think you know most somewheres uh, you know perfectly uh, happy for people to be internationally minded they're probably quite internationally minded themselves in a vague sort of way you know that they're they're um you know they like to go abroad and they will make donations to international charities and they uh, obviously believe that countries should cooperate for peace and um and the environment and things like that um very few people are sort of you know really old-fashioned protectionist nationalists that want nothing to do with abroad any longer i mean tiny tiny proportion of the population um but I think they probably view with suspicion that part of the population, um, which is which is still small but probably growing quite fast, which which is um, genuinely cosmopolitan, um, doesn't really feel any attachment to 
this country um and um and and what is i think um what what gets people uh, what what creates hostility is the idea that that is morally superior um and actually i mean perhaps this is just um a bit of sophistry in a way but it, but it but it always reminds me of the uh, the paradox of cosmopolitanism of course is that um cosmopolitanism requires a critical mass of somewheres it requires countries it requires indigenous populations and cultures because the whole point of cosmopolitanism is it one sort of flits from one place to another place but if there aren't those places uh so if everybody was a cosmopolitan cosmopolitanism would be impossible yes. cosmopolitanism requires rootedness and yet it often uh sees itself as somehow superior to mm. to the rooted and people who um have a stronger attachment to the people and the places they know well than they do to people on the other side of the world and that you know there's an aspect of modern liberalism that has has denigrated that and that I mean, it's bit I mean, one can sort of see its roots in the in the the moral universalism of of Christianity indeed many of the great world religions have an aspect of moral universalism um um uh, as indeed have some of the great millenarian political movements of the past but actually in the 20th century partly as a result of the horrors of the first part of the 20th century two world wars decolonization a holocaust there was a kind of element of moral universalism came to be written into our uh, into the UN um 1948 um declaration and indeed into the into the constitutions of most liberal societies um but a belief in the moral equality of all human beings is not the same as saying we have the same obligation to all human beings i think there's a sort of category error that many liberals made and perhaps still make um because that i mean a kind of full universalism like that makes absolutely no sense at all i mean i think it's a kind of unhuman thing and it has within it the kind of destruction of any coherent society we cannot have the same i mean not everybody can be my brother if everybody is my brother then nobody is my brother essentially what's interesting is uh, there is a definite thread in the New Testament, I think. There is a definite political theology that you can read from Jesus. It's not the only one um, that uh, points us in that direction, that says, you know, any fool can be, any fool can love someone who loves you. Uh, it's just to his mother and brother, I, you know, these are not my family. My family is my disciples. There is a, uh, lots of people have seen that trajectory in liberalism towards a moral universalism that says uh, the kind of good human being moves from loyalty to immediate family to loyalty to immediate clan or tribe to um yeah, loyalty and yeah, obligation to yeah. wider human society and i think i i, I, think, I think it does need to be bounded i mean it doesn't work if it's completely unbounded you know the good samaritan actually shared a society with the with the man he helped but in acknowledging our bound <laughs> bounds or bound boundaries i know that a lot what a lot of liberals would feel nervous about with your argument would be um the permission that gives for tribalism, the permission that gives to say, you know, your uh, the people that you are connected to, you can fight for their rights and sort and sort everyone else. Do you think that that's just a false illusion? Uh, yes, I do. I mean, and uh, and I think you know you can you need to be kind of hard on on a an unthinking universalism. Just uh, uh, you need to be just as hard on an unthinking tribalism as not as on an unthinking universalism. Um, you know, n- neither of them work in big complex modern societies 
Um, but some, um, uh, you know, I mean, the idea that our, there are obligations kind of, we, we have obligations in an abstract way to, to every other human being. Um, but I think uh, the, those obligations necessarily become weaker in some ways, the, the sort of further away people are. Um, and I think having a strong attachment to one's own place, one's own family, one's own town, one's own society um, is is perfectly compatible with um, being generous and, and open towards the rest of the world. You know, charity begins at home, but it doesn't end at home, I think is, is the best way of putting it. And do you think that this is um, the reason that immigration as a policy, which, you know, on one hand could be quite a dry, wonky what's going on with our borders and the movement of units of people and resources and actually is a deeply emotive, really probably the most um, emotive flashpoint in our politics at the moment. Is it this clash of the values of the somewheres and the values of the anywheres? Um, yes. I mean, I think, uh, you know, immigration is is an issue that is both um, an issue in itself, in its own right, but also it's a kind of emblem issue. It's emblematic of rapid social change. It's an emblem of the... The disregard that uh, what is seen by many um, people on on less well educated, more modest incomes, that the more rooted somewhere type people, it's it's seen as an emblem of the relative disregard that um, a liberally minded elites and political classes have for them. It's as if they're saying these other people are more important. Um, that they used to worry about us, you know, the, the liberally mind, the kind of Polly Toynbee classes, they used to care about, you know, the ordinary poor people of Britain. And now... It's almost now, like adoptive, you know, parents who adopt another child and the first child feels abandoned. Well, yeah, or the... Um, who's the character in Bleak House? Um, um, Mrs. Somebody or other, you know, who's, yeah. who uh, cares not for her own children, but yeah. it's sort of caring about all those causes the other side of the world. Um, you know, the, all, all of those, you know, all of the kind of, you know, Diffid is the most popular Whitehall department by a long way among, amongst highly educated kids coming out of elite universities. That, that sense that they're not particularly interested in, in, in visiting the lonely granny around the corner, you know, for an hour uh, at the weekend. They're much more interested in, you know, it's the sort of saviour complex of the kind of liberal managerial classes, if you like. They want to save the world, but not actually, uh, you know, they want to do it on a grander scale than than the little everyday actions that uh, could actually improve the world just as much. Speaking of tribes and commitments and, and groups, you've had an interesting journey in your sen- in yourself. You talk about having moved from a broadly liberal political position to a much smaller C conservative and having uh, seen that happen uh, politically. Um, I'd love to hear how that's been for you personally and, and emotionally in the sense of your loyalties. You wrote, I think in 2004, you began to write about immigration in a way that went against the, cur- the current liberal consensus. What was the reaction like then and what was going on in you internally as you were coming to those conclusions? It, it was, um, I mean, it's a 
it's a sort of it's a story that um tends to get recycled not always by me but every time i write a book or something you know, that, you know it's a sort of peg that people like i mean i this, this has been said about me for at least 10 years i mean i i first sort of stumbled into these debates about race and immigration and multiculturalism and so on in back in 2004 when i wrote an essay in prospect magazine called too diverse question mark about the tension very much directed uh, an essay very much directed at the centre left and looking at the tension between solidarity and diversity um, and uh, suggesting this is something that people on the left needed to think about. I mean, that these two things are not necessarily in conflict, but they're, but they're, but there is some uh, inherent tension that, that could perhaps be mitigated, but you need to give thought to it. Perhaps you need to worry about more modest levels of immigration you need to think about integrating people in so that so that the we is expanded so that people are happy to share their resources based on the on the common sense premise that people are happier to share with people they feel they have things in common with and trust and were um, you changing your mind at that stage um i think i sort of came to it you know in almost through argument i mean through um through intellectual debate i hadn't when i when i wrote the piece um it seemed to me um a sort of relatively commonsensical argument from within contemporary liberalism saying you know exploring some of the potential tensions and contradictions uh it was reprinted in the guardian and caused quite a hullabaloo and i was accused of being a nice racist i think and various other um terms like that um it, yeah, up to a point, but it, it sort of seemed to me so, you know, so untrue and sort of um, uh, silly in a way. Um, I, I don't remember feeling... I mean, you know, I mean, I went to kind of, I started going to, to being, I got invited to events and, and there would be... Um, yeah, you know, people would sort of shout at me, and um, you know, I became a bit of a um, a bad guy, and um, uh, and you know, I got into some emotional arguments with people, um, but I sort of felt that you know, this was uh, um, this is kind of the new front line of politics in some ways. You know, it's kind of you know, left and right was in some ways receding in importance, um, and um, these kinds of conflicts over um uh, over national identity and um and uh, and how more diverse and liberal societies kind of hold together you know what 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 are what are the common norms that we require in order to function well as a, a as a modern society that these were the new this was the new center ground of politics um and i and i you know and i pursued that interest i mean i i didn't always want to I mean I was interested in other things too I mean the problem is you you know it's very easy to get sort of typecast you know oh well you know he's the sort of ex-lefty who's prepared to say things about immigration and multiculturalism that uh, and and it was around the time when the BBC was starting to become a, a little bit more aware of the kind of narrowness of its own perspective so I was quite useful um in that I I was still sort of an acceptably liberal person but but said things that were, I think, felt okay. and believed by by large parts of the population. I think I booked you when I was working on the moral maze in that exact oh, right, right. box. So I... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, have I kind of lost friends and um, had, you know, arguments at dinner parties? Yeah. Um, 
But I think um, without... Um, I mean, it's the thing that Jonathan Haidt writes about, um, and one doesn't want to sound smug about it, but if you if you kind of... you've Not only do you understand liberalism, you've been inside liberalism, but you feel that you're then able to kind of look at it somewhat more objectively, at least half from the outside, you're in some ways in a stronger position, as he says in, in The Righteous Mind. I mean, conservatives or non-liberals can you know recognize whatever it is sort of five or, or six political Im- impulses then they you know there's the, the basic liberal ones of fairness and harm i mean kind of reduction of harm the kind of utilitarian reduction of harm fairness and justice but then there's also the sacred um the loyalty. loyalty tradition uh, well i think that's the sacred um and and I and I feel I can yeah well I have really yeah <laughs> um, and uh, you know and and I think I can I think I can I sort of straddle the divide I think I can see and feel I mean it's partly about feeling um, because hardly anybody really comes to positions I'm slightly contradicting myself because I'm suggesting I did over um, raising question marks about multiculturalism but I mean invariably we um, adopt positions that are based on our pre-existing values and feelings and priorities and educated people are better at selecting uh, the data and the information to support their case but they are this is the point in a way that Michael Gove I think was making making in his sort of critique of experts that actually experts and ordinary people have exactly the same impulse when it comes to taking up positions. Um, uh, experts do not, I mean, except in sort of narrowly technical areas, obviously the real experts, the people who keep the keep the planes flying and the computers working and, and, and remove the tumour from our brain or whatever, I mean, those are the real experts, we leave them aside. But the kind of experts who take part in, in political debate um, have come to their views in exactly the same way that ordinary people have. Um, they are uh, they're no more likely to sort of survey the evidence on an issue and then come objectively to to a certain set of views than than Joe Bloggs is uh, and Joe Bloggs knows that um, uh, and it's one of the reasons why I think you know that the claim to expertise often well it, it needs to um, acknowledge that fact does knowing that make you more humble in your when you're engaging in public? Or is that just not possible within the current terms of our public debate to, to, to caveat yourself, to say I'm not sure or I've changed my mind? Yeah, I mean, I try to say that as often as I can. I mean, if I'm if I'm on doing something on the radio or TV. Um, but, yeah, it, you're, you're right, though. You, it's often we, you know, it, and indeed it's part of the sort of centrifugal tendencies in, in modern societies is that we do often, you know, the, you know, the, well, this is probably not so true. Political media, political media has always been adversarial because that's our political tradition in a way. But you find yourself, I do often find myself wanting to be somewhat more rounded and accommodating and uh, and you find yourself in these kind of more gladiatorial situations the whole time. Um, and you, because you do believe what you believe and you want to, to defend it and, you, uh, you know, you end up, you know, in, in, a, in a kind of verbal punch-up. Um, and uh, I mean, I don't want to sound pious about it. I, mean, I think that's that's often <clears throat> how it should be too. I mean, but um, but I do think it's. Uh, I mean, well, a parenthetical thought. I mean, I think the you know, if um, again, Jonathan Haidt has talked about this. I think in an interesting way, this sort of centrifugal versus centripetal um, <clears throat> um, 
effect in our society and um so many so many of the sort of centripetal forces have 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 loosened or been in decline i mean just at the very basic level i mean you know not so long ago uh we we all lived under the threat of the cold war i mean that held us together as a country held us together as a kind of western alliance held us together in europe in all sorts of ways held us together with america um that has disappeared um obviously that's it's good that it has but it kind of it it sort of relaxes one of the muscles of of combination um uh, and the media i think is another very good example i mean you know when i was young you know large parts you know we had what you know three four channels on the tv everybody in the society you know from from the richest he to the poorest um watched the same you know 25 million of us or whatever it was watched the Morecambe and Wise show at Christmas and there was a sense of the kind of media as the as the kind of national campfire around which we sat and now of course it hasn't gone completely but it's but it's not nearly as strong as it was and of course we've got the social media with the you know, the confirmation bias bubbles and all of that. Uh, and you've got a much more liberal and a much more diverse society. You've got the rise of identity politics. You've got that um, um, much higher levels of immigration that that, that have all, all add to that reduction in um, in trust and, and sort of and centripetalism, if you like. Obviously, um, in 2004, after that piece and for the, for the years following, uh, Twitter was not yet a big thing. And we've seen um, just this week as we're recording, uh, Toby Young resign after you know, <coughs> public outcry um, after his appointment to the Office for Students. Do you think that um, had your uh, developing thinking on immigration been happening, your... your uh, 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 you know, in 2004 and Twitter had been around, you might have had quite a different experience. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought of it. Um, I Yes, I suspect I, I would have done. I mean, I might have felt a lot more battered uh, than I... I mean, I, I, I mean, just thinking about it because you were asking about it earlier. I mean, I, I was trying to think back and I... And I, I, you know, I remember feeling, you know, a, 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 a bit... Um, a bit under siege sometimes. and um, But I, I felt confident enough in my own... Uh, case in my own skin I you know I, I, I didn't think I was a racist uh, in any kind of meaningful sense I mean in beyond the sense that we are all you know you have the Harvard test or whatever it is you know we all respond um, yeah, racially at some unconscious level but um, you know I mean I, I, I was I was confident that um, uh, that what I was saying was was reasonable indeed that it was was something that the vast majority of the population believed Um but you're right. If I had said it now, I think I'd have been, I'd have, um, I'd have had a much more uncomfortable experience because um, this was a time, 2004. You know, it's not that long ago, but it was still uh, certainly on the left, um, but, you know, most broadly defined. You know, be, you know, saying that levels of immigration are too high or far too high, despite the fact that 70 percent of the population or whatever told pollsters that pretty well every week. Um, it was still but quite a strong taboo. And and that was very unhealthy for our public debate. I mean, you know, that is certainly very, very different today. Um, and I think we have, um, we have learnt sort of gradually to separate out issues of the economic and indeed cultural impact of large scale immigration from issues of racial justice, which are, um, which, you know, possibly overlap in some ways, but are essentially completely different subjects. Um, I mean, perhaps that was helped by the fact that so much of the immigration since 2004 was white European. 
Yeah. Um, no, I, I think it's, it's a good point. I think it would have been much more uncomfortable um, doing that today. You are on Twitter, I believe. Yeah. And how do you find engaging with people who um, disagree with you or uh, attack you? <laughs> um, do you? Do you just block them or do you? No, I've, I've blocked hardly. The only people I block are people who seem to be doing commercial things. You know, you get you suddenly get a whole stream of tweets selling you something. I mean, I've, I've only blocked a couple of people in my life, partly because I don't actually I haven't worked out how to do it. But um, <laughs> I mean, there are plenty of people on, you know, who who follow me who you know who are you know whose views I do not like at all but I, and occasionally I will have a brief um exchange with them um but I know I, I I I try to I think it's a sort of good thing in a way to to have as broad a spectrum of people in your what's it called your your feed your as as possible I mean I sort of almost pride myself on that um because uh, that's what I was trying to do I mean it's uh, at prospect when I was in the in the last few years when I was editing prospect you know try and have the argument you know within the pages of one magazine rather than be the new statesman or the spectator with your but to be you know have left and right um open closed you know anywhere somewheres whatever arguing um with each other um in a civilized way um and, and being a being a platform for that, um, you know, open to all kind of in, intelligent and well-expressed shades of opinion, um, and um, and that and that is something I still very much believe in, and um, partly what my you know my book. <clears throat> although I'm very critical of anywheres, I mean I'm an anywhere myself, and it's, the book is very much directed at anywheres. It's both of these worldviews are completely. Perhaps this is something I didn't emphasize enough, or haven't emphasized enough, because a lot of people have sort of felt rather offended by my book, particularly at the sort of Guardian end of the spectrum, and you know associated me with the famous Theresa May point about if you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. It's a statement I completely agree with, although I think it's turned out to be very counterproductive for her. It's been her sort of basket of deplorables um and um uh, probably cost her a few seats actually at the last election um but um uh yeah i mean i've 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 wanted to try and um acknowledge that both of these worldviews are completely legitimate um <clears throat> there is a political problem in that one has been um overly dominant uh, in our politics and culture in recent times and some adjustment is necessary um we don't want to replace one form of dominance by another we don't want all the kind of anywhere values to be out the window and somewhereism to be um to be sort of uh, arrogantly replacing it on the throne um um but um and i and i and i do think it's interesting in the post brexit politics has sort of followed this pattern a little bit that, that what's happened is you've seen a sort of distinction within the anywhere political class between the sort of militants the kind of ac graylings the people who say you know this is these brexit people are barbarians you know we must sort of hold the line against them uh, and then the the kind of admonished anywhere is both amongst the ordinary voters and the political class of, of whom perhaps Theresa May is the prime example of people who say, oh, actually, we got this wrong, didn't we? I mean, look, I mean, we haven't been listening to people and we've now had this kind of revolution in the form of the, the Brexit vote. It, you know, if we want to re our politics, then we have to 
we have to find a new settlement. I mean, that's what politics is. It is about finding agreement between um, conflicting interest groups. Um, and we seem to have kind of lost that sense that that is, that is what political statecraft is. Um, I, mean, I, I was just at a seminar listening to Nick Bowles talking uh, a couple of days ago, and, and there were people mainly from the centre-right there. But everything, pretty well everything they said, I th- it, it occurred to me, could have been... Uh, agreed with and much of it was sort of technical stuff about how to increase investment levels, how to solve the housing crisis, what to do about sort of social care and things. A huge spectrum of political opinion, including the Corbynites in in some cases. We know we were talking. Nick Bowles was talking about um, um, ways of uh, um, you know re- reducing the excesses of directors' pay <clears throat> by making the next round of corporate tax cuts dependent on companies showing uh, uh, some modesty in the um, in the ratio between their highest paid member of staff and the average uh, average um, and ideas like that which would probably appeal to the court and I sort of th- I, and it occurred to me we actually have still quite a high level of <clears throat> consensus particularly on these more socioeconomic issues um, but what we lack is this is the sort of state that is the consensus building the statecraft to create political solutions now that may well be because although our politics in an abstract way i think is in a perfectly healthy state you know you might say the brexit vote was a was a sign of democratic vitality and health in some ways and look compare scotland to catalonia i mean this is a this is a real vote of confidence you know all the smart people for the last 30 years um you know the anthony barnett's have been going around saying god aren't we antediluvian you know we don't have a written constitution um well thank god we don't you know that it turns out that the kind of bottom-up common law, parliamentary sovereignty tradition, when something like Scotland comes along, for all sorts of contingent reasons, historical reasons, Scotland um, gets um, politically dominated by the SNP, there's a a big move towards independence, London is able to say, well, uh, we don't want you to go, but okay, have a referendum. And it went what I think is the right way, relatively close, but went the right way, and look at Catalonia. Catalonia has a Spain has a written constitution with some rather silly things written in it. I.e., Catalonia cannot have a referendum, so you're left in this kind of terrible mess. Yeah. There's a flexibility about our system, and I mean, I think you know this. Is, although I voted Remain, I was kind of I was pretty fifty-fifty, and I'm not unhappy about Brexit. And I think this illustrates some of our great historic political strengths in a way that that are threatened by. Um, by European, different European political norms. Can I? It's okay. Can you? Um, I'm going to ask one final question. As someone who I think is clearly actually quite good at communicating across difference and quite comfortable with difference and moving between different tribes, what would be the one thing that you think would make our public conversations better? That would help us in um, reconnecting some of these groups. Yes. Um, how, how does one? Um, I mean, it's it sort of comes down to emotional intelligence in a way, doesn't it? Um, I think um, um, statecraft is is a kind of big macro form of emotional intelligence in some way. I mean, if we're trying to if we're trying to um, bring different interest groups together, you know, if we're talking about rebooting Britain after Brexit. Like I said, there's a huge number of things that we can all agree on, that I, or, or a very large proportion of the population can agree on. Our problem at the moment is that um, while our, our underlying politics, as I just described, I think is quite healthy, 
our party system is out of sync in a way. It hasn't on the historic um, left-right divisions, um, even though uh, even though it's drifted away from those uh, in the sense that you know, Labour Party has become largely the party of the liberal middle class. Um, Tory party is now a more working class party, at least in its voter base, than Labour. Um, so all of that's become confused. The parties are um, are both divided by the new um, value divisions, the kind of anywhere, somewhere type divisions, albeit in Labour's case, more between its MPs and activists and its voters. So we, we, we're, 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 in, we're in a political mess because the the parties don't reflect the new divisions. On the other, having said that, I mean, I, I, I don't think it would necessarily be a good idea for new parties to emerge, as it were, to reflect in purer form the new value divide, say. That actually there's something very healthy about the fact that parties are always coalitions of conflicting groups because the whole of society is a coalition of conflicting groups in some way so you get you know you you learn your political statecraft in the inner party um context before taking it out to the to the national context and i think um we're, we're just we, we're going through a period when we seem to be particularly weak at that i mean the classic example here is the conservative party manifesto um, where a actually quite bold and, and maybe sensible approach to sharing the burden of the social care bill by drawing down some of the the um, equity um, gains made by generally speaking more affluent people in in London and the southeast in order to pay for social care. No work seem at all seems to have gone into preparing the ground for this. So the whole thing blew up in the middle of an election campaign, partly contributing to the Conservatives' very poor performance, in, partly in the way that it revealed Theresa May's woodenness politically. Um, but I think we do need we need to keep parties as 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 coalitions of different groups, and uh, for, for well for the for the reasons you were saying, you know, in, in order to to learn how to talk across. These 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 gulfs and divisions, and learn how to be um, emotionally intelligent in in political argument. Thank you for listening to the Sacred. I really hope you enjoyed it, and I do hope that you're listening to our previous episodes. Do follow us on Twitter at Sacred underscore Podcast. You can tell me directly what you thought at Theos Elizabeth and you can find out more about our work at Theos at theosthinktank.co.uk.